This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Identifying stress incontinence early and referring to a pelvic floor physiotherapist will help the majority of patients with this condition. Surgical interventions of varying degrees of invasiveness and efficacy are good options for those who fail non-surgical treatment. Let's hear more from Dr. Jerome Mellon. Dr. Mellon, tell us about yourself. Okay, um, so I'm a uro, subspecialist urogynecologist trained uh, mainly in Perth with subspecialty fellowships at Monash University in Melbourne and McGill University in Canada. And I currently work at Gold Coast University Hospital and the Queensland Pelvic Mesh Service as a urogynecologist and also in private practice. Jerome, thank you for joining us today. We're going to focus on stress incontinence. Now, give us a sense of how common this is. Okay, so stress incontinence affects up to about 30% of women. And obviously the main risk factors for stress incontinence are pregnancy and birth of of a baby. However, there are other risk factors, including obesity, chronic coughing, chronic straining, all these risk factors that are the common link risk factors for any pelvic floor disorder, be it stress incontinence or prolapse. It sounds like anything that requires lots of Valsalva uh, manoeuvres, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So stress incontinence is leakage of urine with exertional activities. So anything that increases your intra-abdominal pressure which overcomes urethral resistance. So things like cough, sneeze, laughing, jumping, Mm. um, sports activities, Mm. all these kinds of things. Which, of course, may include weightlifting, Jura. Absolutely, yes. Uh, So any strenuous activity and repetitive activity. How commonly do women turn up at their GPs and actually say, look, I actually have a problem with my waterworks? Uh, Or is it a more, if you like, silent condition that many women suffer and not tell anyone? I think it's probably the latter. Um, A lot of women are either embarrassed by it or feel that it's just a normal thing. They've lived with it for many years. And a lot of women aren't aware that it has treatments, that that it is something that can be um, either improved or cured. Some may have an understanding that it's only for the older people. Uh, Do younger women get this? Absolutely. From uh, childbearing age, women can be affected with stress incontinence. It can happen after their first birth. Uh, It can occur during pregnancy. And obviously, it does become more common with more deliveries and as a woman ages. Jerome, what's the best way to bring up this topic in a woman who may be in an at-risk group? Yeah, I think that we all need to be sensitive and aware of these pelvic floor conditions, aware that a woman may be embarrassed or not want to bring them up. 
but I, I, I feel that we should ask sensitive screening questions for pelvic floor disorders because we know that they are very common and often women won't necessarily present to the GP or to gynecologists even with that specific problem. So I think that it is important to ask, you know, how do you feel about your bladder function? Mm -hmm. Do you have problems with urgency or needing to go to the toilet a lot? Do you occasionally leak? Does that bother you? Do you have any sensation or um, feeling of heaviness or bulge in the vagina? Is that bothersome to you? Mm -hmm. These kinds of questions, I feel, often will open up the conversation. For the purpose of this podcast, let's just say we have a 35-year-old woman who now responds, yes, thank you very much for asking. I have these problems. How should we progress? Absolutely. So obviously a, a detailed history and then examination. And with the examination, we're wanting to assess her, her pelvic floor completely. We would want to know, is there leakage of urine with a cough or with Valsalva, so pushing down, and then an assessment of prolapse. So is the bladder you know, prolapsing, coming down to the hymenal ring or further? And is there you know, perhaps the uterus behind it, uh, the strength of the pelvic floor? Given that, I think education for the woman that stress incontinence or pelvic floor conditions are common, there is treatment for them. Treatment depends on whether the woman is symptomatic or wants treatment. These things, these conditions are not dangerous and it's simply a quality of life issue. But simple measures are first initiated and that would involve referral to a pelvic floor physiotherapist mm -hmm. for pelvic floor muscle training and usually this would be a trial of a three months pelvic floor muscle training mm -hmm. and up to 70 percent of women will have a significant improvement or cure simply with a dedicated physiotherapy pelvic floor muscle training. There are other forms to do physiotherapy, including electric chair stimulation, uh, weighted vaginal cones. The studies demonstrate that they are all equally efficacious in providing initial therapy for pelvic floor disorders. Now, you've mentioned a few things there that I suspect the physiotherapist will actually suggest, or are we the ones to suggest the options? I think most important would be if the GP were to suggest to the woman that she see a dedicated pelvic floor physiotherapist and make that initial referral. And it is important, I think, to send the patient to a pelvic floor physiotherapist as opposed to a general physiotherapist because they are specifically interested in the pelvic floor and pelvic floor disorders and deal with this all the time. Then the physiotherapist will provide the different options to the patient. Some patients will prefer to do different therapies. Jerome, I suspect that weight loss and uh, preventing a cough would also be a helpful thing. So, you know, making sure the asthma is well controlled or uh, of the causes of coughing, like reflux, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. So all of those things. Um, yes. So weight control, exercise, um, smoking cessation for tissue health, mm -hmm. optimizing their chest, avoiding the cough, optimizing their bowels so that they're mm -hmm. not constipated, mm 
yes, all of these are super important uh, for the management of stress incontinence. Are, are there other non-surgical managements we haven't mentioned? Yeah, so continence pessaries. So continence pessaries... So pessaries are often used for prolapse. However, we also use them for continence. And what they generally, it's generally a ring pessary with a knob, a thickened area, which sits anteriorly in the vagina and sits at the midurethra. And that provides support under the midurethra to decrease leakage during exertional activities. So pessaries are an option for a woman for continence, and sometimes it can help both the continence and associated prolapse. Who fits them? Generally, it would be a gynecologist or a urogynecologist, so a pelvic floor gynecologist, which would fit pessaries and, and manage those pessaries. Jerome, before we send them off to, say, a urogynecologist, would you like GPs to do any investigations before you see them? Yeah, I think that it's important to get a renal tract ultrasound. And the purpose of the renal tract ultrasound, we're looking at post-void residual volumes. So obviously, if a woman has stress incontinence, she may also have a bladder prolapse. She may not be emptying well. She may have voiding dysfunction, and that would worsen her stress incontinence. So we definitely want to know that the woman is emptying her bladder well. What sorts of residuals begin to worry you, you know, when we have to refer? So in a healthy young woman, we would hope that a post-void residual volume of less than 50 mils mm -hmm. Is, is expected. Post-operatively, most urogynecologists will be happy with post-void residual volumes of less than 100 or 150 mils. So I suspect anything higher than that would require at least a referral. Absolutely. So if a woman has increased residual volumes of more than 100 mils or 150 mils, I would recommend referral. What's the, if you like, contribution by, uh, you know, medications such as um, diuretics or others that might make it worse? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, women often will symptomatically feel worse and have more leakage in the presence of diuretics. What we often will do is ask the woman to see her GP or cardiologist for the timing of the diuretics mm -hmm. and optimization of the timing. Diuretics, if they're necessary for her cardiac or other reasons, these are, these are important health issues and the diuretics obviously need to continue, but we may be able to adjust the timing to minimise the impact on the patient's symptoms. When you say timing, Jerome, are you meaning morning versus night or uh, what, what comes to mind? Absolutely. So it's, it's more common in the woman who has frequency and urgency. And so we want to avoid the woman needing to get up at night, for example, mm -hmm. uh, increased production at night time. Mm -hmm. uh, affecting her nocturia. So often we would suggest the diuretic in the morning. Anything else we can do before we move on to the next step? No, I think um, a renal tract ultrasound, a referral to a pelvic floor physiotherapist, and 
education are the paramount thing. Guram, let's just say we've got a suboptimal response or even a very poor response to these sorts of issues, and the patient has had three months of physio and, and had worked hard, uh, where do we go now? So I think at that point, referral to a urogynecologist would be the next step. At this point, generally, if the woman is significantly troubled by her symptoms, then we would offer either a continence pessary or a surgical treatment for her stress incontinence. Can you tell us more about the second one? In Australia, there's been a lot of movement in the surgical management of stress incontinence, especially in the wake of MESH. A few years ago, it was very common for women to receive mid-urethral slings for stress incontinence. However, given um, adverse media attention and Senate inquiries in Australia and class actions and adverse events from MESH, including chronic pelvic pain or new onset dyspareunia, a lot of women are not seeking mesh implant treatments now. There are four surgical treatments for stress incontinence. The first and most minimally invasive is urethral bulking. And this is where we place cystoscopically a permanent gel under the mucosa of the mid-urethra to coapt the urethra mm -hmm. to help prevent stress incontinence episodes. This is the least invasive procedure and is done simply through a cystoscope mm -hmm. and is suitable for either women who uh, have comorbidities and are not suitable for a more major surgery or possibly who are younger and are still in childbearing age. This has a success rate of about 50 to 70% for significant improvement or cure of stress incontinence episodes. Another option would be a laparoscopic birch colposuspension. So this is a procedure that is done in the space of Retsius, which is abdominally done. And what we do is we place sutures at the side of the bladder neck and suspend that to Cooper's ligament, which is a ligament in the pelvis. This restores the vesico-urethral angle and has a cure rate for stress incontinence of about 70 to 80%. Another option would be to perform a autologous fascial sling. So a fascial sling is instead of using a synthetic sling, we harvest the a sling from the from the patient's own tissues. We make a cut like a cesarean section. So it's a 10 centimeter cut, super pubically. And from the rectus fascia, we take a sling about seven by two centimeters and we place this strong fascia on sutures and then place this at the mid urethra vaginally to support under the mid urethra. It basically is the same type of surgery that we were doing with a mid-urethral sling, but using mesh. This has a higher success rate of about 80 to 90%. Or the last alternative is a mid-urethral sling. So this is using mesh, which is a permanent implant, and this is placed at the mid-urethra. 
either retropubically or a trans obturator. But the improvement rates all sound pretty good, but of course, the greater the intervention, the higher the rates. So how do you choose the right procedure for the right patient? I think that it is very important for the patient to be aware of all the four options for the surgical management of stress incontinence and for the patient to make an informed choice for herself. Mm -hmm. Patients will want the highest success rate Mm -hmm. and the highest success rates are from either a synthetic midurethral sling or from an autologous rectus fascial sling. Some women absolutely in that group want to avoid mesh. Mm-hmm. That case, then a autologous rectus fascial sling, so using their own tissue to make a sling, is probably the best option. Some women don't want at all to have an abdominal scar. In that case, we're left with either a laparoscopic birch, copper mm-hmm. suspension, or urethral bulking. So if cosmesis is an issue, then a laparoscopic birch might be a good idea. And some women want the least invasive option, in which case that would lead us to urethral bulking. And urethral bulking is probably the best option in older women, especially if they have lots of medical comorbidities, making them unsuitable for a bigger surgery, or if they are still of childbearing age and are considering uh, future pregnancies but very troubled by their stress incontinence and need something done now. So what about the longevity of the procedures? Uh, Do some have a longer lifespan, for example? This is a difficult space because we're limited to the studies. So we have 25-year data on midurethral slings to say that they have a very high success rate, around 85 to 92% long-term. Likewise, the other uh, groups, fascial slings and colposuspensions, we have about 10-year data to Mm -hmm. suggest that long-term, they have about an 80 to 90% success rate. So, Whilst they have been around for a long time, unfortunately, in some cases, we don't have studies which adequately reflect the amount of time that these surgeries have been around. But Cochrane reviews would suggest that long term, all their success rates are reasonably comparable. Jerome, I'm just thinking that if the, my, my patients sort of mid 30s at the moment and, and you might have 10-year data. So let's just say she's 45 and then this has some recurrence of symptoms. Can you then move upwards to a urethral sling, either mesh or autologous? Yes, and that is one of the benefits of the urethral bulking. It's thought not to distort the anatomy mm-hmm. and not to affect any subsequent success rates from surgeries that may be needed as a rescue. So it is sometimes the case that women will require a second surgery for treatment of stress incontinence, either recurrent or persistent, because the original surgery did not cure them. And there are different things that we would use 
to help us decide which may be the most appropriate next surgery. Generally speaking, a autologous rectus fascial sling or a mid-urethral sling are considered more the rescue procedures uh, for a recurrent or a persistent stress incontinence that wasn't treated with the initial surgery or sometimes urethral bulking. Now, how about a quick look at possible complications with each of them? Okay. So obviously urethral bulking is the least invasive and has the lowest success rate, but also the lowest risk of complications. And those are mainly related to either failure or the cystoscopy, including infections, UTI, hematuria, bleeding. It is possible for the gel to erode through the urethral mucosa or to migrate. And early on uh, in the piece, there were reports of pulmonary emboli. Going on to laparoscopic birch suspension, we obviously have the risks of laparoscopic surgery, including visceral injury in the abdomen or vessel injury. Of course, failure. There is the risk of suture erosion into the urethra or the bladder with subsequent stone formation or recurrent infections. And of course, what, what's considered birch pain, so a, a pain related to the sutures. Um, there will also be laparoscopic scars from that surgery. A birch also has an increased risk of getting a rectocele, so a posterior compartment prolapse. Looking at a mid-urethral sling, of course, it, it is reasonably less invasive than a fascial sling, but we're using a synthetic mesh implant. So it has all its unique mesh-related potential risks, including mesh erosions, mesh exposures in the vagina or erosions into the urethra, bladder or adjacent organs, uh, risk of chronic debilitating pelvic pain or new onset dyspareunia. And all of these issues can be very problematic for the patient. And most women who require mesh excision, it is due to a chronic pelvic pain or significant dyspareunia. And of course, there are risks of visceral perforation or injury during placement of the sling. And when we're talking about an autologous rectus fascial sling, it's the same surgical principle as a retropubic mid-urethral sling, but we avoid all the risks of mesh. However, there is generally thought to be a slower recovery due to the fact that there is a suprapubic 10 centimeter incision and a higher risk of voiding dysfunction postoperatively where the woman may need to have a catheter or self-catheterize. And this can be up to three months. The risk of this is about 10 to 20%. I also haven't mentioned the risk of recurrent stress incontinence or urgency and overactivity of the bladder. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. So with all of these procedures, it is possible to have exacerbation of overactive bladder or worsening urgency. And this can be also in the setting of voiding dysfunction. What can we do then? Voiding dysfunction is 
something that does sometimes occur with treatments for stress incontinence. It would be diagnosed with ultrasound with an elevated post-void residual volume of generally something over 100 mils. It depends when the voiding dysfunction commences. If it is close to a stress incontinence surgery in, in timeline, then we would generally recommend intermittent self-catheterization starting four times per day mm-hmm. and then weaning it down in frequency per day as the post-void residual volumes were improving. Mm-hmm. Sometimes alpha blockers can be used to uh, minimise avoiding uh, dysfunction. Sometimes the surgery needs to effectively be undone where we need to divide a sling or excise a portion of the sling to relieve the voiding dysfunction. I suspect that uh, there will be ongoing review of the patient and symptoms by the surgeon. Uh, At what time do you normally see them after surgery? General practice is to see a patient six weeks postoperatively And this is to ensure that all wounds are healed, that uh, the patient is doing well symptomatically, that there are no new issues to deal with, and also to reassure the patient that she can resume all normal activities. Um, No need to go back to the specialist for a while? Generally, if a woman has had any of the stress incontinence surgeries other than a sling, at the six weeks review, if she is well, she's had a really good success rate from the surgery and there are no new issues, then she can be discharged back to the care of her GP. If she's had a mesh implant, generally we will continue to see the patient six monthly and then yearly to ensure that she doesn't develop mesh-related complications. Jeremy, you've told us a very, very, I mean, this has been a very educational uh, podcast. Have we missed any of the points that you want to get across to GPs? I think an important point would be that a lot of women are aware of the issues to do with mesh and have been scared about seeking treatment for pelvic floor disorders because they are worried that surgeons may use mesh in surgeries to treat these things. I think it's important for general practitioners to be aware that for all pelvic floor conditions, that we do have non-mesh options to treat patients surgically, which do have good success rates. So I think GPs can reassure patients that there are a wide variety of surgical options with which to treat patients which don't include mesh if they are concerned about mesh and that they should seek treatment if these pelvic floor conditions are causing bothersome symptoms and impacts of their quality of life. That's a wonderful way to sum it up, Jerome. Thank you so much for your time and for your good teaching. You're very welcome. Thank you very much and very nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Have a great day. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye, Bye. Jerome. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. 
HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.